0: Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gail Margo Land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is part of the Uniting Mission and Education family and we appreciate their support and uh, check the show notes for their upcoming Preach Fest. Uh, conference or festival uh, happening in June and uh, today I am very excited to have one of my old teachers on the podcast, Catherine Massam from Pilgrim Theological College. Catherine, welcome along.
1: Thanks Liam, it's great to be here.
0: So Catherine Massam, for those who don't know or never had it as a teacher, uh, researches, her research explores intersections between Christian tradition and wider culture in post-colonial settler societies including Australia. She writes on the history of Christian spirituality, especially Benedictine traditions, cross-cultural encounter in the Australian mission context, the dynamics of work and leisure, and is especially interested in methodologies that open up neglected sources and experience, such as historical readings of space and place, devotional literature, art, music and material culture, which I can attest to from as someone who did uh, your, you know, church history quote-unquote subject back at Pilgrim, uh, which I really appreciate and still can remember our weeks on the, uh, was it, English hymns of the 18th century or something like that by women hymnal writers. So, you know, that, that I can attest. Um, but today we're talking specifically about her new book, A Bridge Between, uh, which we're going to get into today. So you'll find out a lot more about and uh, you, the link to it will be in the show notes today. Uh, so let's let's start with the book here, Catherine. I guess how did you know from reading the book and reading you know particularly the the forward and and the acknowledgements this was a long process. So I guess maybe even before you get to the the we talk about the book, how did your initial encounter uh, talk a bit about the community that this book is about and and how you initially kind of came into contact with that group?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it is a long project, and, and one of the things that's um, been so great about it is that it's been possible to spend almost 20 years um, engaging with this material from one direction or another. Um, so, and it builds on uh, connections before that, really. Um, so, it, it's focused on uh, women who worked at uh, the monastic town New Norcia in Western Australia. And I grew up in Perth down the road from New Norcia. And in the mid 1990s, well, early 1990s, when I was teaching at UWA, there was a program that ran at the monastery for students in medieval history. Um, one of the monks who had been a postgrad in medieval history had sent this set this up, and then I inherited his role and um, began to take groups of uh, first-year medieval history students to the monastic town for a weekend so that they could, you know, immerse into this Mm. um, other culture. Um, And in the the course of that, um, we would take students to the museum, which is um, now uh, still in the institution that had been what was referred to as the old convent. And on the wall in the museum, there's the family tree, or there was then, of um, the Willoway family. I'd studied with Paul Willoughby, um, and behold, you know, there was his auntie Veronica, who'd joined the Benedictine missionary sisters as a teenager. And this this whole sense of who the sisters were that had been in the convent was um, well wasn't clear. What you know, that they'd left town, and and um, what they'd been there to do and how they connected into the history of um, both monasticism and the mission um, was was um, was a puzzle. So, mm-hmm. um, so there was that initial awareness that there was something I didn't understand about the role of the um, women. Yep. Um, and then. In 1999, when I was on, I had the opportunity to take a period of study leave from a role at um, the University of Adelaide by that stage, and uh, it seemed that coming to terms with the archive at Minorsia and, um, you know, seeing what could be um, explored there um, was a good line to pursue. So they said come and see, come and see if there's enough um, material and in some ways, there wasn't really like it, it. The because the sisters had left and had, well, um, that they'd always had a different attitude to record keeping than the monastic community of men. Mm-hmm. Um, but because their history had been so fragmented, so their their records were very fragmented, scattered uh, between New Norcia and the Kimberley and. Um, some traces in Belgium, others in London newspapers and, and a stash of material in Madrid, which is where they moved their um, mother house to eventually. Mm. Um, so it was a matter of piecing it together yeah, and yeah. slowly with interviews um, as well with the sisters who um, were still um, surviving and also with some of the women who'd grown up in the institution that they
0: ran. Mm. And I think like one of the things that you're kind of touching on a bit there was just, you know, how, you know, with a bridge between just how many ways that this community is, this kind of oddity with so many things that uh, are surprising. So it's it's Spanish Benedictine nuns in a monastic town, so they're not monks, but in a monastic town, in, you know, white Protestant Australia, you know, part of the English colonial project, um, you know, take, you know, um, you know, which involving you know, taking land and disrupting families of Indigenous peoples and, and bringing children. So, like, the amount of kind of ways this comes in and part of what you point out in the book is, you know, though this is like, you know, this talk story in a really small corner touches on so many of the really live questions of of history writing and research and, and particularly religious history writing and research in Australia. Uh, so maybe do you want to talk about a bit about kind of, you know, yeah, this place within this broader whole um, and how this is, you know, both a very intimate story but also one that kind of, you know, o- you know is part of this wider work that is ongoing?
1: Yes. Yeah, great question. Um, and I, I think it's true to say that the, the story is, it, it has a very close focus on this institution or the, the women that ran um, an institution, 58 of them, mostly from Spain, um, it's got a close focus, but it, it's not at all narrow because of because of the way it connects with some of the most pressing questions that um, not just history, but also theology, um, and wider society in Australia uh, needs to un- needs to explore about um, reconciliation and uh, the way forward there. Um, so. How does it connect, um, well, in the multiple ways that you've mentioned really? So they um, they fall between categories again and again, um, and and therefore they can open up the discussion in multiple directions. So um, the fact that they're Spanish, let's just think about that, um, they fall outside the um, respectable categories in white Australia so on all of the immigration material mm. they're mediterranean they have to apply um to be res- registered as as aliens um, and and in that category they they um when they they're admitted they're given permission to work here um so they they fall within the parameters of the state, if you like, Um, but but they they also understand something of the experience of the Aboriginal people who are classified outside. Mm. And it's interesting um, again and again through the history that that marginality in one way or another, you know, um, navigating between the monastery on the one hand and the chief protector on the other, or um, between the parents of the children and the children themselves. Um, That that sense of being between um, uh, defines them. Even even, um, for the first first 30 years of the community's existence, they have no formal status in the church. They are technically just a group of women who've gathered together as ordinary lay people making a um, a particular commitment to the the work and the the monastery <clears throat> but they they're not even um uh, you know they aren't they aren't a congregation as such um until efforts to regularize their status really kick off in the 1930s and and aren't finalized until 1953 so it, mm. it's a it's a very loose informal um, network um and one of the things that uh, struck me and that the book tries to make clear is that um, through all of this, it, it's it's the relationships that they form with the people that they're working with that are definitive. And um, in terms of explaining the work that, that they saw as um, primary and key, the work with the Aboriginal children, Um very much uh as complex as that is mm. and as um, as much a product of, of um, colonial injustice as that is the the relationships um within that uh community are ones that the Aboriginal women themselves want to remind us um Want to remind us of as valuable, you know that, that there's a refrain that that runs through um, the reunion that that was definitive for me in, in coming to terms with how a non-indigenous researcher might engage with this, mm. um, and and that I think uh, well it, it starts it both starts and ends the book mm. this reunion in October 2001, where um, one of the things that that the the generations of Aboriginal families that came to town kept underlining was um, that that there's a story with within their experience of 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 the fact that there's love in in this home. You know, not to deny other mm. um, other parts of the, the experience and not to deny um, how much was stolen um, and you know the the stories of abuse that we've all become aware of. So much more sharply since the Royal Commission, mm. um, you know, it's, they, they, the Aborig- Aboriginal women themselves, alongside the sisters, hold together this complexity, um, and the way that the um, the way that the relationships can sustain um, some sense of common horizon, and um, uh, I think I've lost the thread there. Um,
0: no, that's 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 and actually leads into a question I wanted to ask. Which you know, because uh, so I was reading so the in that opening chapter where you talk about you know that that reunion and 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 you're bringing up that this complex um, history and this complex relationship to the past, that there there is very much this this needs to be you know um, rightly you know criticised, critiqued, condemned. Um, but there was you know there's want this want to move toward healing and this want to recognise. What else was there, um, and how you know you' and that how that then plays out? I was how that then plays out into your process of writing the book, um, because you you talk about um, you know the advice you were given by uh, or oh, was it Veronica Teresa Willaway uh, who, who gave you the advice? Don't praise anyone. Um, oh, yeah,
1: well, it was one of the Spanish sisters? Sorry, um,
0: yes, right. Yeah, Teresa Teresa Gonzalez, yes. Teresa Gonzalez. I'm sure ter- Veronica. Yes. yes, there are many reasons. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, <laughs> that, 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 yeah. So Teresa Gonzalez gives you this: don't praise anyone. Um, mm. So you've got that because you know the, the past history of how to write about nuns is kind of hierographical, and you know th- this kind of praise, and then but you also want to avoid just coming in and being like this horror story. Um, and, and and here I'm just going to th- I'll just throw just, just one tone of how it's this This awful thing, um yeah, how how did you find your own process of of walking that line? and you know, was it something that you would have to read back and find if you were edging one way or the other or it just kind of feel its way through?
1: Um, I guess it, the the reunion of um, two thousand and one provided keys in all sorts of ways um, and and also. Uh, um, well, out of that experience of, of seeing the way the stories were held together by the people who'd lived them, um, I got interested in work by Hans-George Gardamer about how you can bring complexity together on a common horizon if, if you find the right keys. And then also Miroslav Volf, who talks about how... Um, Memory itself is is made up of um, complexity, you know, um, and and that the the way in which people stitch together the memories of the past um, is full of a series of choices. So I guess I saw both First Nations women and and the Spanish women um, negotiating. Uh, the awareness that that, that it was a complex institution, that there was, um, well, as one of the other sisters said, you know, um, much to pray for, not much to be proud of, Um, stitching that together with the reality that um, women who had fought all their lives against the threat that their own children would end up in care, brought their grandchildren to town, proud and keen, that that generation would meet Mm. um, the ladies that looked after Nana, Mm. you know, one of the other phrases that ran through that fortnight, you know, here are the ladies that looked after Nana. And the the sense of um, it it goes to what we were talking about before, I think, the sense that um, a community that was at the edge of all sorts of mainline categories, um, that, that because the Spanish sisters were not monks, not white, not Protestant, um, and and often not very fluent in English and not very educated. That that um, there was a community of outsiders almost um, that that um, enabled um, a different kind of conversation with the Aboriginal children um, and one that has endured. So when when they came back in two thousand and one, it wasn't that they appeared out of the blue, um, it was in fact that uh, First Nations women had um, invited them back um, and had been in contact and, you know, could follow the the complicated lines of correspondence um, around the globe um, in order to to issue this invitation and with the idea that, that there was another story to be told apart from um, some of the things that were starting to surface, um, you know, to, uh, about abuse, about the need for an apology, uh, that, that there was, it was women who um, were reacting quite strongly against the idea that that their childhood was only a stereotype, who were mm. key players in in enabling this this um, reunion to happen. Initially, it was going to be quite a um, It was just a private thing. Yep.
0: Um,
1: And then gradually the idea that there was some public uh, dimension to that grew. Um, And because I'd been working on the story of the sisters for a couple of years by that stage and I'd um, interviewed them in the Kimberley and in Madrid, um, I I was um, kind of like a historical Rouse about in the midst of that, you know. I, I understood yeah. the sources, um, and uh, so was privileged to hear some of these conversations that that underlined the significance of the relationships, mm. um, which yeah, which as I keep saying, had endured and yes. and and pointed to something that was more complex than than. Um, story of deprivation you know Mm. not to say that it should ever have happened but that Mm. in the midst of it all um there was something else to be paid attention to
0: yeah yeah thank you for that so thinking about trying to kind of maybe then more like the, the history of it and the and the um benedictine sisters themselves um you know, as you were going through this and trying to piece together, as you say, a very uh, mixed match bag of uh, of documents and then the interviews and things like that. Um, What was it, I guess, particular things that kind of that struck you either about, you know, their, their experience, things that, because it was a long, long stretch, were the things that kind of, that held the same for them? Or was it one of those things that you could feel change dramatically over the decades? Because, um, you know, in some ways, it's both removed as this group who are removed set outside of as Australia is changing in that time but also very much you know part of that colonial project and and, and just the changing society you can't be entirely outside of it so yeah just just any kind of things that you kind of stumbled upon or started to notice as you were kind of looking at them over the years.
1: Mm. Um, well one of the constants is is the hard hard work that they, they were uh, a very busy community, and they were um, given responsibility for uh, the domestic work that really kept the mission town functioning. Um, so that was uh, the laundry, which uh, you know before before <laughs> the nineteen fifties and even after was was right. you know, heavy, um, um, fairly unpleasant work. Yes. Um, so they they were washing at its peak. They were washing for two hundred and sixty people a week. Um, and cooking at its peak um, for that number of people a day. For much of the history, it was a smaller um, institution in terms of individuals, um, but at the beginning there was quite a lot of heavy farm work. Um, one uh, set of records that didn't survive, um, of which there are only echoes, um, it gives a uh, uh, some indication of you know how often they were out in the fields um, picking stones, clearing clearing land for the plough, that kind of thing, um, and and right through they're um, involved in harvesting the the grapes when the vintage is on, uh, picking olives, uh, working in the olive, orange grove, um, and uh, and and cleaning. Um, through through the town, um, so they had responsibility for some very mundane things. Um, stories about how they would clean the sewers with, you know, unblock the sewers with coat hangers, um, and they were also responsible for starching the altar linen and and you know um, decorating the church with flowers. So that there's and and they had um, right through a very strong tradition of um, fine handwork. Um, it's one of the things that the um, the women who were at school there um, still um, see as a matter of pride that they 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 mm. can embroider and um, you know crochet and and do very fine craft work um, and that kind of collaborative work with the sisters was part of part of the um, well the pre pre and mid war years especially but continues. One of the things that changes uh, is that the school comes into focus. Um, so there's, there's always a, um, a small school um, that provides um, a kind of curriculum that, that reflects what's um, expected for um, working-class women, um, so practical skills rather than um, mm. much academic training. Um, and in but in the late 1940s, uh, that expands. Uh, two uh, of the women who come in 1948 uh, are both uh, really quite gifted as teachers. Finally, there's some teacher training. Um, one of them had worked with Maria Montessori and you know, brought that oh, sense wow. child-focused um, child child-focused mm. child-led um, education. She was uh, constantly frustrated because New Norsey is very isolated and she couldn't, you know, access resources that that would have helped. But um, from the late 1940s, the the school begins to be um, something that's more at the centre of of the enterprise. Um, So tracing that shift was really significant. Um, And then there's a fault line that's also constant through the community of women, and and that's that's the tension between um, monastic observance on the one hand and and practical missionary outreach on the other. Um, So as I've said, they're they're in a very um, undefined position in terms of church law and... uh, And although they're dressing as nuns, they're they're not formally within that category um, until um, 30 years into their history. Um, And the the question of how much they follow the classical monastic pattern of um, prayer um, several times a day and how much they're they're free to... um, be active, you know, teachers and sports coaches and, um, you know, uh, people interacting with the wider community. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that, that's a, a constant, yeah, a constant pull. Um,
0: yeah. Oh, thank you for that. That, that, that is quite interesting. And um, so I was curious then to think about the post-war shift um, and part of what, what prompted in my head is I know there's going to be a conference later in the year in Australia about Christianity in, the, in Australia in the 1950s, nice. um, uh, and so you know I'm thinking like okay so post war you have you know large societal changes. There's the shift also there of now this kind of the loop the Cold War and and, and the specter of communism uh, and and you know that has. Um, Changing things, what it means to be, you know, Australian and white, and you know, within this identity and Christian becomes obviously a, a factor that plays there. And then also, though, at the same time, is you're getting into the years before Vatican II and and shifts in in the Catholic Church around race and justice and and and, and mission and, and colonialism. So, like again, in some ways, you feel like well, New Norsica is. Like Perth is very far away from everything else in Australia, let alone everything in the world. And now we're going further out of here. Um, so again, some ways, you think, you know, is this something that didn't get to them until about a decade later than everywhere else, um, or was it already kind of shifting, especially in those those like last couple of decades of of, of the presence of the of, of the sisters there?
1: Mm. Um. In some ways, uh, new Norse is at the heart of some of the changes that happened post Vatican right. II. Um, that, that's really interesting to notice. So liturgically, um, or right through this period, uh, there are um, there are choirs with lay participation. That you know, that that's something that that. Um, is a bit unusual um, and and it's a a hallmark of the the education that both First Nations and um, the European children who are at the other boarding schools um, were part of. Um, And I'm pretty sure that the first Catholic woman in Australia to receive communion under both kinds is the Catholic term, so both the, the, the wine as well as the bread um, is Anne Moynihan when she made her profession as a Benedictine uh, sister in the nineteen sixties. Yeah, wow. So, um, so there are those quirky little things. Yeah. That, uh, because it's connected internationally, very, very securely, and always has been. Um, New Norcia is not isolated from from some of the currents of Catholic thought. Mm. Um, Salvado, the founder has an interesting profile in the 19th century at the heart of monastic reform and and although New Norsey is isolated from other monasteries, the communication um, with the the Roman centre Mm -hmm. um, is something that's significant and and, Mm -hmm. uh, participation in the various councils and so on. Yep. um one of the things about 1950s Australian Catholicism is that the convents boomed in like if there's a peak of wow okay lots of which is a little bit outside um internationally it seems to have happened slightly earlier mm-hmm. but um partly because of the Catholic education system and the, the the pool that that was for idealistic uh young women and men to you know, serve in this way um there's a there's a, a peak around 1953 mm-hmm. when um, you know the the novitiates the the, the people who are interested in uh, people who are interested in be, in joining these communities um, peaks mm-hmm. and that that's reflected in the community at New Norcia too because in the 1950s two of the First Nations women who'd been to school at St Joseph's. Um, became members of the community, first uh, Cecilia Farrell and then Veronica Therese Willoway. Um, and and that's, that's probably the most significant post-war shift in terms of the life of the community, that all of a sudden there are these Aboriginal women, well, not all of a sudden, yeah, yeah. A, out of a long history, there are these Aboriginal women who make a, a commitment um, as Benedictine sisters and bring another dimension into the... Um, already complex mm. um, race relations, um, and both uh, both of those stories uh, were compelling, really, to trace. Yeah, um, yeah. Then, in terms of the anti-communism, which, as you say, um, marked um, Catholicism in Australia uh, through the Cold War, um people often say, well, that, that replaces sectarianism. So as, as the fear of Protestantism starts to fade, mm-hmm. the fear of communism <laughs> moves into that space. Um, and both of those have have the effect of, of um, pushing the, the, the priority for work with Aboriginal Australians, you know, down the list. So mm. the diocesan um, structures of Australian Catholicism um are, are not um not geared towards work with first nations people really I, I I mean not really until it comes comes into light after the Eucharistic Congress in Melbourne in 1973 really. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, the the all consuming needs of the Catholic education system and the um the, the threat of of um, uh, well atheistic materialism is what it emerges as in the records rather than communism right. but this yep. this international threat of of atheistic materialism is is much more to the to the fore and mm. so it's it's overseas groups um, like the Spanish benedictines and the German Palatines who are involved in um, in mission work with with First Nations peoples, mm. historically, because yeah. they 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 um, they felt they didn't need um, to be so efficient in English to to do that work, as as if they as they would have been if they'd been running parishes um, yeah. directed at you know, urban Irish um, diaspora people. So it's mm. a very mm. uh, interesting set of questions, and yes. Huge change post-war, post-World War II, um, but kind of consistent with with some of the patterns that had already been laid down, I think.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. And, again, like just goes showing like how, yes, how, again, it's all connected to so much of, you know, anything you want to start looking at on this topic of religion in Australia and across the 20th century, you know, that this, how this, you know, threads into all of that. Uh, so in in that last response you mentioned um sister sister veronica teresa willaway uh, who writes the forward um to the book a very um warm and, and, and helpful forward is going in and you know she talks a little bit about her own journey there of, as as you mentioned um joining the community and then she like all the sisters goes to spain when they're um when they end when they finish and, and they call back and is now in the us um mm-hmm. i believe or at least is at the time of of, of writing that that forward so i guess um maybe just a little bit about, you know, her role in helping you th- through pulling, the, you know, the research, because she kind of mentions in the foreword she's known you for quite some time, Um yeah. and also, yeah, kind of maybe a bit of that, you know, just because even that part when I first was reading that introduction, it's like, yes, and I went with everyone <laughs> to back to Spain. You're like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess if you've joined the order, that's what you do, but it just feels very, um, yes, for for. Protestant fellow like me it always surprises you for a moment You're like oh yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, it, it deserves to blow your mind I think that one. right yeah good
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes um well the the um the connection with with uh, Veronica who is now back in Australia actually okay. so there's, there's there's a lovely um yes. loop being closed um so Veronica is the Aunt of um, my friend Paul Willoway. So, Paul was a student uh, in social work when I was an art student. And uh, the very first interview that I um, did in relation to this project was with some of the um, First Nations women who had grown up at St. Joseph's. So, I drove to the next town where they were living, next town along the Great Northern Highway from New Norsea. Um, and the very first question that they asked me was so the first question was when they asked me rather than one i asked them and and it was so how do you know paul and i had no you know i had no inkling that they knew that i knew paul um so it was um uh, it, it was very important to be able to say that we'd studied together and that um, and that uh, I knew his his mother Rose, uh, so Veronica's sister, and Rose uh, at that stage was chair of the um, Aboriginal Corporation at New Norcia, so an important um, you know grassroots organisation. Um, and at that so at that stage, I hadn't met Veronica. Um, but I gave a seminar at the end of that first study leave. Rose and some others came along and um, they were very clear that I needed to talk to her. Um, and at that stage she was at, um, in Nebraska. So after after this move of the mother house to Barcelona and then Madrid, she'd come back to Australia for a while, but for um, close to 30 years uh, at that stage um, she'd would she been um, with the Benedictine Missionary Sisters of Tootsing, another congregation that the local um, New Norcia group had merged with in 1986. Mm. So she'd been part of the community there. Um, She was also home on home leave from time to time. So um, first interview I did with her was um, at Rose's house and we talked together about what it was like growing up at New Norcia. Um, and this extraordinary decision that she'd made really as a twelve yeah. year old um, oh, wow. to to stay with the sisters to join to join the group um, and then there there were many conversations um in I, I went to visit her a couple of times in nebraska and um and it, it's one of the privileges of being able to do the work slowly really that that um It wasn't a matter of just uh, talking to people once and and getting the story um, sorted then and there, but um, being able to return to the themes and and draw them out. And so Veronica's story, um, which is a very uh, unusual, profound set of experiences, um, she she talked into the layers of that as, as the conversation went on over the years. Um, together, we've presented uh, some of this material at conferences. So there's a quite a vibrant network of um, people who are interested in the history of um, these kinds of communities internationally. Um, and uh, Veronica uh, co-presented a paper at, at um, a conference in Santa Clara um, towards the end of the project and has been um, a a key voice really in in laying out not only the experience of what it was like to grow up in the institution um, but also um, how how to frame the the Spanish sisters in relation to uh, their own involvement with um, First Nations people. There's one. There's one very funny interview where um, it, some of the sisters uh, used to used to used to say to the kids, um, "Oh, you know, you're uh, you're just a black fella," yeah, you know, and, and other um, mm-hmm. things. And, and Veronica. Um, speaks up in defense of, of um, some of this you know it's not that they thought that it really you know it was a, it was a way of encouraging them to have different values and mm-hmm. and it doesn't you, you can't um, explain away the fact that um, being a black fellow was still something to be told off about mm. um, but but I, I guess of all the the many bridges between in mm. in this story um, Veronica Willoway the, the Eward woman who becomes a Benedictine um, is, is um, most obviously um, between all sorts of categories. Yes. And, and her own sense of, of, you know, returning to Australia and now taking up a role in um, Aboriginal Catholic ministry, that uh, diocesan network, um, I think uh, the formation with the Benedictines is, is being put to another kind of purpose.
0: Hmm. Thank you for that. Look, uh, as we, as we kind of land in, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your hopes for the book have, have you know, are apparent from our conversation today, but I thought I'd give you one last chance to think about it. if, you know, if people are picking up this book, um, you know, let's say not just for the specific purposes of their researching um you know various uh pockets of Australia's religious history. What 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 for you would be a hope that people would come to as they um spend time in this in this very rich, complex, um and, and in many ways you're saying not, not at all easy to tell story. Um, it's even interesting in the in that I was thinking about early on where you talk about, you know, even you know, what historical tools does one bring to bear in talking about Religious fervor and 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 practice and life, but I guess, yeah, what would be your your hopes for those? Being, our hope for those picking this up um, and and reflecting on this on this long story.
1: Hmm. Um. I think fundamentally, I, I'd hope um, that that people uh, people get some sense of of how significant. The whole process of of storytelling and and listening well is um and that that mm-hmm. there are that there are layers in the stories that everybody has um that that we um that we can pay attention to fruitfully um and i think the um first nations people are telling us more and more clearly that that Um, deep listening, careful attention to um, to experience and to the stories that we tell out of it is is, uh, key to healing, to reconciliation. Um, I'm struck by the way the Uluru Statement from the Heart um, identifies, um, identifies sovereignty as a spiritual claim um you know so it's a claim about relationship mm. and um there's there's something about the centrality of uh relationship and listening well to stories that are fundamentally spiritual mm. that that um uh that this book tries to do and and wrestles with yeah um, so i i hope people feel invited into um mm. Paying similar attention, you know that, that there's that there are complex stories that um, that reconciliation depends on. Really, that that until we pay proper attention to the many layers, um, and stop speaking past each other, um, it, it's it's going to stay stymied.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. So the book, folks, for those who want to check it out, which I very hope you do, is A Bridge Between Spanish Benedictine Missionary Women in Australia, With uh, out now with Australia National University Press. Catherine, thank you for joining us today. Is there anything else you want to uh, draw people's attention to or, or promote at this time? No, Liam, I'd promote the podcast. I think you do great work. <laughs> ah, thank you. So there you go. <laughs> well, if this is the first one you've ever listened to, go and find another episode and subscribe like leave reviews all those things that i never i always forget to ask about or talk about but no thank you for that that's very very kind of you and uh yes thank you for this conversation today it's it's been a blast
1: thank you yeah great to talk